This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author Ellen Ullman is joined in conversation by CIIS writing professor Carolyn Cook to explore the transformation of society through the rise of the internet. This talk was recorded on September 14, 2017, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, uh, uh, interviewing Ellen Ullman has been uh, uh, on my top, the top of my list uh, uh, for a couple of years, and I'm really delighted that Public Programs has brought you here. But you did it yourself by producing this book, which caused you to be in the public eye and uh, and be in the beam of our attention. So I'm really happy to welcome you to CIIS. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks. So I just wanted to do a little outline of um, Ellen's oeuvre, which kind of coincides with my um, discovery of, of her work, although I, I was so dimly aware of it for a long time until you started producing novels. But um, in 1996, uh, a really important book came out called Resisting the Virtual Life. Have any of you read it? Some of you have read it, maybe. Um, yeah, most of you didn't even have your first computers. That came out in 95. <laughs> 95, sorry. And Resisting the Virtual Life was a really, uh, a really beautiful collection of essays about the future of the internet. And um, Ellen had a piece, which is the beginning piece of uh, uh, um, Life in Code. And I asked Ellen to begin by just giving us a, a taste of that essay. It's called Outside of Time, Reflections on the Programming Life. People imagine that programming is logical, a process like fixing a clock. Nothing could be further from the truth. Programming is more like an illness, a fever, an obsession. It's like riding a train and never being able to get off. The problem with programming is not that the computer isn't logical. The computer is terribly logical, relentlessly literal-minded. Computers are supposed to be like brains, but in fact they are like idiots because they take everything you say at face value. I can say to a toddler, are you okay today? And the toddler will understand. But it's not possible for a programmer to say anything like that to a computer. The compiler complains, finds a syntax error, won't translate your program into the zeros and ones of the machine. It's not that a program can't be made to act as if it understands. It can, but that's just a trick, a trick of the code. When you're writing code, your mind is full of details, millions of bits of knowledge. This knowledge is in human form, which is to say rather chaotic, coming at you from one perspective, then another, then a random thought, then something else important, then the same thing but w with a what-if attached. For example, try to think of everything you know about something as simple as an invoice. Now try to tell an alien how to prepare one. That is programming. <laughs> 
I love this essay. And when it came out, um, I, I remember being really taken by some lines in it and reading Life in Code. I was happy to encounter it again. I remember living in uh, Mendocino County, homeschooling my babies and not having TV in the house, you know, just this very pure life, very different person then. And, um, and you talked about uh, how the programmer must not be interrupted. Um, I, was, I was writing my first book or my second book, and I just remember the struggle to be in a kind of internal silence so that I could hear the voices of my book and my work. And your essay spoke to me so perfectly and completely across the difference in our, uh, our worlds. And um, so a few years later in 97, the next next year, uh, when you wrote Close to the Machine, uh, Technophilia and Its Discontents, I immediately had to read it and felt the same thing, except uh, in, that, in that book you wrote also about being a woman uh, engineer in a very male-dominated world. Um, and yet, it wasn't about being a woman and being a programmer. It was about being a woman in a very male world and how you navigated um, your own needs. And it was so refreshing and reflected ideas I didn't even know I'd, I'd felt and had yet. So I felt for a long time such an affinity with you, even though I really don't know what the hell you're talking about most of the time when you talk about programming. Uh, <laughs> I thought I was doing a decent job you know, of saying, like, you really don't have to understand this. This is just like an illustration. Mm -hmm. In the book, The Bug, I have code samples, and mm -hmm. they're written in sort of higher-level code, so you can say, if there isn't a nearby neighbor, then do this and do that, which you can do in code. And I didn't expect anyone to be sure to understand it. The idea was to demystify code. Look, it isn't this unbelievably weird thing. Here, here's a little box, like any other illustration, and this is what it looks like. So I try to expose the reader to what this is. It's not a magical, myth mythical thing. It's some text that's structured, and it doesn't relate to mathematics in the way people always say it does, but it's a formal language. And if you know how to do your long division, that's sort of a formal language. So I try to just say, look, just look in here. You know, don't treat this as if this is something you just can't understand and you have to leave it to these experts who are creating this world where corporations and the government surveys you and so on and so forth. Here, this is what it looks like. You could do it. Well, if you care to. Yeah, and I think you you also write so well about the process of coding that it's possible to um, to to kind of imagine it as as coding a language, as writing sentences, as creating something out of nothing. I, I was thinking of uh, uh, you said somewhere that programming turns thought into action. And um, I think of The Bug, uh, your first novel, which came after Close to the Machine. And um, in, in The Bug, uh, uh, the, the character Rebecca goes home at night and writes poetry and uh, smokes cigarettes and talks about the exhalations of her spirit after the day of programming. And um, so I, I, I felt that kind of kinship um, 
but I was really relieved that you'd written a novel. And then that novel was followed by uh, By Blood in 2012, um, another novel that, that actually wasn't about programming, but I think was set in a way uh, in the office where you worked, um, where you wrote the novel. And so there was a lot of you in it in a kind of oblique way that I really enjoyed teasing out. Um, that was very weird for me. I, the New York Times... Uh, their description online of the review was, Ellen Ullman abandons technology to write about, well, something else, you know. <laughs> it was very funny. I mean, it's fair enough, because if I, if I was known at all, it was as someone who wrote about technology. And there I was, trying to break out of that. You know, this is hard, I think, for anyone who does creative work. You do a body of work, and if you're very fortunate, people pay some attention to it, and they think of you as someone who does that sort of work. And then, well, you'd like to do some other sort of work. And it's very hard to people say, well, that's not what I liked about you. And at what point do you just say, well, I don't care if that's what you like or not. This is what I want to do. That, that is a big question. You know, if, if, if you have readers, do you send them away? If you have people who like... Um, the way you do your short stories and don't like the new ones you've done, do you just say, oh, well? Mm -hmm. you know, this, I think, is a big quandary for anyone who mm -hmm. does creative work. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you're a really interesting symbol for that because I think technology symbolizes for a lot of people the non-human, um, the machine, the non-human, and a kind of relationship to a kind of pure state of thought that isn't inflected by emotion and all of that, whereas um, writing novels is um, generally seen as an activity that's all about the human. And I think um, you're shaking your head. And I, I think I'd love to hear you talk about uh, how these aren't uh, uh, dichotomous activities. Okay, first of all, Code is not clean, logic, typing in the ether. Human beings write it. They have bias. They have values. Those values are imbued within the code. They affect changes in society. They affect us interpersonally, down to the most intimate parts of our lives right now. The scariest thing I just learned about technology, and I keep getting scarier and scarier ones, but this one really tops it, about algorithms is a professor at Stanford, uh, last name is Kowalski, who reported findings that there are algorithms looking at facial recognition uh, software that can tell if you are gay, if you're healthy, if you are prone to violence, if you are conservative or a liberal, and there were some other deeply disturbing aspects of you that it could discover the algorithm could discover with accuracies on the order of 80%. And to me, this crossed a certain boundary. And it was because he was so blithe about it. He said, well, the face is public information, he said. So I never can see code as something that's pure. It absolutely has the intentions of the people who designed it and the people who decided to pay for this company, which startups to fund, which projects to do in a corporation. So there is that. Let's just, let me put that down really hard, because I, I, if I ever think about anything I want to say about programming, is that it's made by people, and they have points of view. 
some of which are wonderful. You know, Pokemon to me was one of the best things technology can do. It was just pure fun. I, you know, that's that was to me was great. And when people started to say, "Oh no, pedophiles will show up," I was like, "Ah, go away," you know. Um, uh, so there were wonderful things. I mean, there were wonders that technology can create. But I have all this. Um, not cautions, it's actually graduated to alarm and outright fear. Okay, but I'll go, I think your original question was, what's the difference between writing code and writing prose? Is that, now, code can be elegant. You know, algorithms can have within them a certain beauty. And I think people who are mathematicians can tell you that, well, that's just a beautiful proof or something like that. Um, and you can read different code and see that. Some programmers are sloppy. They write things that are too compact. They don't leave you any comments to help you learn it. They're ungenerous. Their code works, but it's clunky. And then you see something that's just, just, God, that's just exquisitely expressed. But what code expresses, it's what it does. It doesn't really have any meaning outside of what it, as it functions. Of course, language can not work and still work. We can break grammar, right? I can say to a toddler, are you okay to you, day? And the toddler will understand. Um, you can write poetry. You break all the rules of grammar and spelling. You can write novels in hip-hop, you know, dialect, um, interspersed languages, and somehow, even though it's wrong, it can work. And that's the, the thing that computer code cannot do. It cannot be wrong and work at the same time. Right. And it, 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 it reminds me what you were just talking about, the, uh, the, the uh, Kowalski, the Stanford scientist, um, and the facial recognition. Um, uh, uh, you, you were alarmed by that, and you talked about a little about the closed algorithms and um, the ways in which human bias comes into the, there's no such thing as, you know, pure kind of code that's, uh, um, what would you say, um, uh, uh, without the judgment of the coder. Well, there is some. I mean, like the really baseline algorithms, like shortest distance between two points. These were written, oh, over the course Oh, now it's going on 70 years, no, I'd, no, I'd say 30 or 40 years, there have been contributors to the, you know, the, the most beautiful algorithms. And they are really more like mathematical proofs. They, their intentions are very clear. I want to know the fastest way to get from here to there, and which is one of the most, the basis of the, the web. And so there are, there is code. I, I'm walking back what I said before. There is code that is abstractly beautiful and is not, its intentions are, are quite beautiful in their own, in their own right. But so. the impression given by, uh, say, facial recognition software is that it's scientifically based, right? That, that the facial recognition is based in hundreds of photographs of the same person that are being somehow analyzed through this elegant algorithm that is somehow uh, without bias. But how does that work? Um, and, and we don't get to see it, right? If it's a closed algorithm, we don't know what goes into it? Well, is that obviously, the problem? if you're going to find someone who, okay, let's say 
they actually claim, uh, he claims 83% uh, accuracy on uh, knowing if someone is, is a lesbian. So what does that mean? You know, uh, I was with women for a long period of my adult life. I pretty well look like this. Do I look like a lesbian? I mean, what is a lesbian? You know, this definition of someone with short hair and maybe stocky looking. Um, the fact that it took this stereotype and that stereotype at that moment did conform to that person does not mean that that's what lesbians look like. I mean, this is the, the reinforcement of stereotype. That, that In is, the code, right? The code is actually... It is making it's, the it's assumption... It's got to be written somewhere. Right. right. And, and it, it, it reinforces that stereotype. So if you say, well, what, this is how I notice a lesbian because this is what a lesbian looks like, and da-da-da. So the, and it, the accuracy kind of reinforces itself. So they're not going to catch a whole bunch of people, you see, which is good, I suppose. But... Um, why would you want to do this anyway, is the big question. Why, you know, the problem with technology in general is if, if you can do it, if you can do gene splicing, you will. If you can do genetic manipulation, you will. If you can write an algorithm that looks into the deepest parts of people's values and sense of being, it will be done. And to me, that is the part that, how do you stand up and draw a line? How do we as general citizens change this? So I'm not a political organizer. It, will, it does require political organizing. That is long, slow slog, door-to-door, -door, contentious meetings, clash of need against need. Uh, it's grueling work. Uh, I look at it from the, this is a book about code, and I think, well, what if more people learn to code? If we mixed up the kind of people who are inside those rooms, not just rich white men who are venture capitalists, not just a world that is overwhelmingly male uh, in the engineering uh, side of it. What if we, they have a set of values and that goes out into the world in the systems they design, reinforces those values and spreads them out. So what if we had people with different values in there? How would that change things? That's what I'd like to advocate and find out. I mean, I... I have been accused recently by someone who sent an interview question, well, are you being realistic about how unrealistic this is? <laughs> are you being cynical about how trying to change society might work? Uh, so I, I really don't know how to change this. People ask me, well, what do we do about this? I, I wish I had you know, a prescription. I wish I had a way I could say, this is how we change it. My best thoughts are, of course, political organizing and that, and not on the internet, that, you know, you'll find a whole bunch of people who reinforce your idea. So will they be there during the next election to get your particular representative elected? No, they live somewhere, right? So they're, the, the idea of locality, and I think this is one thing I think all you know, you must talk about here at CIS, the idea of a community in place, in touch. Uh, if you have civic life, if you believe in democracy and civic life, you may hate your neighbor. You may hate everything he or she stands for, but you have to tolerate that person, short of, you know, public nuisances. Um, that's what makes a city. Uh, that's what makes a 
the, the public space. But if you no longer have to do that and you find all your associates on a web page uh, somewhere or on a Facebook group, uh, and this, has, this began 1998, and where the public stopped going to experts in the middle and went directly to web pages to find reinforcement for whatever anything they wanted to believe, and that's where we are now. So how do you do civic action in a place where people are not together in space? and do not form bonds of trust. You know, on the, on the internet, you know, these interchanges, people get into all kinds of ugly things by accident. Someone says something, someone says something, and um, the Godwins, you know, Mike Godwin's rule about anytime there's an argument on the web within 10 interchanges, someone will bring up Hitler. If you watch it, it'll, it'll pretty well be true. Uh, so in that situation, how do people actually make trusting bonds that can affect social change? And you talk a lot about, you know, the, the, the increased number of people who sort of imagine a life of convenience at home, um, you know, and, and just the, we have less need of cities. We have less need of stores and uh, the kinds of commerce that cities partly exist for. Um, and it's... Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's challenging. And I think some of the technologies, like the facial recognition, um, what feels so scary, maybe for, for you and, and for me, I think, is, is that it's almost a technology waiting for a use. You know, we don't quite know what it would be used for. Um, we can imagine. Um, I'm on these geek listservs, okay? Mm -hmm. Oh, popped up immediately, imagining. You don't use the facial recognition on the iPhone supposed to be 10, not X. Um, that is being used in place of entering your, your, your PIN codes, um, even in place of just a fingerprint. Don't put a fingerprint in. Don't do it. Fingerprint is just a piece of data that can be hacked. Um, so all the already someone says, okay, you come across the border, and a uh, customs official says, you know, I want to unlock your phone, and all the person has to do is hold the phone up to your face. And there's your face unlocking it. Now, hope I've been hearing things that you you know you can actually turn that off and require a passcode, but no one has. It doesn't seem to be implemented yet. So immediately you kind of see the loss of control. I mean, if if uh, someone in law enforcement of any sort, they're not allowed to search your phone, but they they just hold it up to you, even by accident. There, there you're unlocked. So immediately you can see the hazards of something that seems really convenient and see also how hackable it is. Anything digital is hackable. There is no safe place on the internet, period. So I was talking about this with uh, my husband Elliot this morning. So we imagined like, okay, there's a hack into your the data that describes your, your face. It, it, it's not... A picture, okay? It's something that analyzes something and comes up with a bunch of numbers that you, you're shaking your head, you know what that is. Yeah, well, yeah, it's translated into, you know, certain formats. Um, but it's just a piece of data, you know, like your address. And so let's say someone hacks it and uh, puts their own picture in place, right? Okay, so 
there are these ads now for you go into a bank and there are these iPads and you just walk in front of it and of course a woman pops up and says, hello, Mr. Smith, how are you today? How can I help you? So, so imagine that this hacker has put his face in place of yours and hacker walks in and Ms. Teller says, hello, Mr. Johnson, hello. And so you can just see that the hazards involved, once you get into um, the biometric data, we crossed into something when we went to, you know, this sort of data, um, scans of the iris, fingerprints, facial recognition, it, the body being taken as data and losing its coherence as uh, a person the outlines of a person. I'll just stop there and let that horrible <laughs> thought sink in. <laughs> well, I'm such a cheerful person. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, all right. Um, so I wanted to talk, this is a slight, a slight veer, um, but I wanted to talk about um, the, uh, the, the, the early computer and... Um, sort of when you graduated from Cornell with your uh, thesis on uh, Macbeth um, and your fearlessness around machines, you found the TR-80? Well, that first I encountered video. I was hanging out in the college town uh, six months too long, and I met a group doing um, video, Ithaca Video Project, and we managed to get a grant to get a Sony Portapack. And this was the first video recorder that an individual could operate. It wasn't cheap by, to, you know, by today's standards, but a group could afford it. You could get grants. Uh, people banded together and, and bought them. So this was like the coming of the PC. It broke the hold of behemoth corporations who held, held your television hostage over what they would show advertisers and, and broadcasters. Suddenly, you could make your own videos. You could show them around town. They could be social organizing tools. They could be plays. They could be fun. Uh, they could be porn. Uh, and they could be art. Uh, at that time, we were aware of being very distantly related to Nam Jun Pike, who was a, a pioneer in this respect who first envisioned or spread the word of the, the television screen as an artist's canvas. And so it was a time of great uh, ferment and ex exploration. And I learned that, well, gee, I really like carrying around this porta pack. I like working with the camera. I thought I was very, you know, cool walking around with cable around my shoulders. Um, I learned editing decks and sync generators and so on and so on and so on. And I thought, well, this is fun. You know, there was no no part of me that was an English major that couldn't also be somebody right. who liked carrying right. around a port pack. I moved to San Francisco. You can't stay in a college town too long. And um, then I walked down Market Street one day, and there in the window was a TRS-80. And I knew it was a... I knew it was something called a computer, and I thought, yeah, well, is this anything like a porta pack? Can you do anything fun with it? Can you make art? What does this thing do? And I quite, without fear, which amazes me now looking back, bought it and took it home. 
And then I set it up and I went, okay, <laughs> this, this is not like pressing a button on the camera of a port pack This involves something called programming, which um, I tore my hair out for a while. It was sort of humiliating, actually. You know, how can I get this? It was easy to do very simple things, but to do anything halfway ambitious um, required that you knew what you were doing. So how much do you want me to go into spaghetti code and Macbeth and the relationship between those two things? <laughs> well, as much as you want, but I think... I'll, <laughs> I'll do it very briefly. Okay. Um, the thing about that basic at that time is you could go some, but go subroutine or go to. There wasn't an easy... It didn't just come back. You couldn't just say return, and it would go back to the point where you left off. So you could wind up creating what was called spaghetti code. And it drove me crazy. And I said to myself, well, if I could untangle the strands of time in Macbeth, which is a very complex play in terms of what really happens before something else, what is news and what is actually already old, I said, you know what? I could figure this out. Really, I actually said that to myself. And it helped. I mean, it was a way in which determination in dealing with difficulty in one, you know, in one field does not, does translate. Mm -hmm. And one last thing about programming, you really, it requires a high tolerance for failure. You will fail over and over. The act of coding is the act of putting in bugs and then taking them out one after another, another, another. So if one doesn't feel a certain, besides the frustration and the teeth gnashing, a certain sense of intrigue and a pleasure of the hunt involved in this, like, I'm going to get you. Uh, not going to last too long in the profession. So. Yeah, I, I I think that was one of the things that drew me so to your work. Um, your your um, I mean, it's a it's a constant theme in this book that you're taking jobs that you don't know how to do. You're programming actuarial tables for your father who's disappointed, and you're sort of putting yourself in the position of using languages you don't know and. And 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 you don't have friends. You don't have help. It's a boys' club. At one point, you enroll in a MOOC um, to see how Python is taught to large numbers of people. Something we talk a lot about at CS right now. You know, to what extent do we want to be an online university about kind of you know uh, consciousness and transformation and connections between humans and a sort of sense of the commons? Um, how much can we do that online? Teaching somatics, you know, for example, online. Um, That's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> really. I'm teaching the body. Yeah. Without a body. No, exactly. I, this is this is exactly. the conundrum of our time. But but it's interesting. We were talking today. A bunch of faculty were sort of worrying this, like a dog with a bone, worrying this problem. And then we realized that um, most of the students, you know, have none of this. Uh, people who want to study online don't have these anxieties, you know, that 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 we have sometimes. But I think you write so beautifully about the willingness to fail, and I think it must translate into the writing of novels. I mean. I mean, I, I, the description you just gave is, uh, it's, it's my writing process, you know. It's, um, it's, it's taking something uh, deeply, psychically problematic for me that another person could probably describe in a sentence and worrying it way beyond, you know, any other person's tolerance. Um, as my children grew up, you know, I, I wanted them to leave me 
because I mustn't be interrupted because the voices were, you know, just the fragility of the voice, this stupid endeavor, nobody cares, nobody's waiting. Um, and you have to fail over and over and over again. And the minute you cast a sentence, you can see the bugs in it, you know. And uh, I don't think I have ever read a better description of that <laughs> process. <laughs> well, the thing was, you have a compiler in code and and you can test it. And you, well, there won't be every last bug out. That's never true. But you are reasonably sure mm -hmm. when it works. Yeah. Now with writing, you never know if it works. Well, you it's a different way of knowing, right? Yeah, but then, you know, you look at it a year later when it's in print, and you think, God, that's awful. <laughs> I wish I could do that over. What, I mean, what do you wish you could do over? I haven't found those passages in your work yet. I wish in By Blood that I had shortened the story of the patient and that I had found, I, I actualized her better in my own mind. I felt she stayed too external for me, whereas the voice of the narrator, this disgraced professor, came to me. I tried to escape this voice. And, yeah. and, and he's one a creep. night. He's kind of a creep. Oh, he's a creep, yeah. man. And I'm sitting in my, my little office and. That one night, his voice came to me, and I wrote 20 pages, which pretty much stayed intact. And I thought, this, this fluency in this voice was a real trap. Like, I'm going to go into the deepest part of my psyche for a whole book. Well, yes, I did. Yeah. So he actually came to life um, in a way that the other characters, and it turned out somebody I didn't expect to come to life, which was the therapist next door, and I'm sorry I didn't spend more time on her. When it was all done, I wanted to rebalance where the characters were. I wanted to, my original conception of the story, kind of, it was very hard to write that book. It was very hard to write that book. Everybody is speaking in the first, first person, and everybody is telling a story. So whose voice was stronger than others was a real problem for me. His voice was the strongest. It was, yeah. yeah. And... It wasn't supposed to be. <laughs> it's, it's I hear writers say that, you know, your character, you know, you know, ran off with you. And I always thought that was hooey, but then it happened to me. Hmm. So it's, I, I really recommend By Blood. It's a, it's a wonderful book. And um, uh, it, it, it concerns this disgraced professor. There's some sort of probably sexual peccadillo, and he's sort of been sent off for a while and rents a, a, a seedy office in a wonderful old New Montgomery Street building and um, finds that he can hear over the white noise machine um, the confessions of a, a therapy patient next door. And um, totally a man after my own heart. And you admit, too, that you're an eavesdropper. Um, Oh, no, what yeah. was even better in that is that the patient couldn't stand the white noise machine. Neither could he. I can't either. I hear these patterns. I go crazy. Um, so it went silent, and then he could hear everything to the lifting of a haunt That's to right, the point where he that. understood they were sitting on leather. So he couldn't even breathe hard. So he had to have this rigidity. Uh, yeah, And it was just like my own office. Uh, it started out there was a uh, matchmaking service. And it was a very thin door, and I could hear them being introduced to one another and their halting conversations, and I, I just sat there and listened. I, <laughs> what was I going to do? Leave? Oh, I'm sorry, I leave my office to give you more privacy? Right, right, right. <laughs> I did tell the woman who ran the, 
who ran it, you know, that I could hear. She says, oh, yes, I know. We're going to move. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they don't realize, like, that you can remember it. I mean, you know, I don't have a lot of skills, but, like, I just remember everything people say. I remember every slide. I remember the actual language. I can put it in sentences years later. You know, it's like people don't expect that. So yeah. they, they're kind of cavalier. It's a little like this other issue of privacy, right? And uh, facial recognition. Like there are sort of bombs among us waiting to go off with all that we have written down and overheard. Yeah. <laughs> Can I say more about this than <laughs> every now young person applying to college is, is learning? Watch out what you put on there. Not only that, people steal your pictures. You know those those fake Russian accounts on Facebook? Mm. They stole uh, photographs learned today from some Brazilian family. So it doesn't matter how careful you are. Um, it's all up for grabs on, mm. on online. Um, yeah. You, the thing is, there are parts of the Internet that are disappearing, but they're the ones you really want to keep around. Like when uh, when Trump came to power... Uh, there was a group of uh, scientists, uh, climate scientists, desperately copying web pages to get them. They were they were copying them as fast as they were being taken down. So, so one imagines, oh, all this is going to be there forever. Oh no, people can take down stuff. Uh, so, the stuff that you really want to take down, you can't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's right. awful. Right. Not in your control. Uh, it gets really grim when you talk about the present and the future, and the book begins with the sort of innocent, you know, sort of wonderful movie-making and art-making. Um, but I wonder what you think about the future of narratives and what kinds of narratives are going to be possible if you could sort of find, I mean, we have students here, find uh, some light of optimism, um, or what's the worst that's going to happen to to narrative? Oh, don't ask me about worst. I'm too good at that, so let's kind <laughs> of do that. Um, well, there is a whole generation now that is used to uh, interacting with the world visually and can only read in tidy bites. Uh, it began to be like uh, there are some web pages where it says how long it'll take you to read it. This is three minutes. This is two minutes. Oh, this one's going to be eight minutes, you know. Uh, whether we will have a next generation that can sit down for half an hour and, or three quarters of an hour and read something uh, in a book, I don't know. There'll be weirdos, you know, uh, like people who like letterpress and, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of... This, is, this has to be accepted. Even though all the, the research shows that children... Uh, their learning is uh, more acute and uh, broader when they've actually read out of a book, touched the pages, went like this, patted, patted the pages, rather than looked at it on the screen. But once, it, once it's out there, there's no going back. There's no going back. My consolation is that what you can see on television and what you can see streaming are some beautiful narratives. Narrative lives on on HBO, on Showtime, uh, some of the other premium channels. That encourages me. 
that there is still this deep love for a story. And that is deeply within us. I think you probably talk about this and think about it. We're storytellers. I mean, that is the way we remembered our past. Story, rhyme, music. And this is inside our bodies deeply. Um, when we're sleeping, we dream, right? And But what's, go- what's really going on is that your brain is just doing housekeeping. It's taking all the stuff that happened today and weaving it into that synapses all around your brain. Um, your brain is plastic, connections are made, loosened, and so it's putting things in there. It's, it's housekeeping. It's basically noise. Meanwhile, there we are desperately making a narrative out of it, trying to make all of this really quite random uh, in, in a narrative sense uh, action into something coherent. And we fail every night, don't we? I mean, you wake up and, oh, you barely remember it. And, well, then I was there. How can that be? And then I was over there. And Or, it, you know, the minute you start to tell it, it, it falls apart. But we keep doing it night by night. We are storytellers. And that is how we try to understand the world. And so, in this regard, I don't think we'll ever fully escape the need for story and narrative. You just reminded me of a dream you recount in your book of um, having to program two people making love. It's a really beautiful dream and I think really evocative and and, uh, I I think it is about the connection, right? A kind of deep need to connect um, two parts of your life. Um, Turns out I couldn't do it. In C. <laughs> yeah, you can't do it in C. Maybe, Maybe some other Python. language would be different, but in C++, I don't know. Python, I doubt it. <laughs> well, the narrative thing is interesting because as we think about the present and the future, and I know there are students uh, who, who wanted to be sure that I asked you about virtual reality and how it relates to, you know, uh, uh, art and production of art, gaming. Um, I think I was. I spent a little bit of this morning um, looking at a game called Passage. Do you know it? Um, does anyone know the game Passage? It's a uh, early virtual reality game that's now, I think, in the permanent collection at the Museum of Modern Art. And uh, what was interesting about the game um, is that you uh, you have five minutes to live. And at the beginning, of you can only go in one direction toward death. You start in adolescence and you end at death. And you're, you know, you're sort of choosing treasures. You're sort of making a lot of choices. You can get married. Um, it slows you down, but you're happier until your partner <laughs> dies and then you're really slowed down. Unless you have a bad partner and then there are other problems. It can, sometimes you can't reach the chest to get the treasure. So, you know, all kinds of things happen. Um, and uh, it's it's sort of seen as this this really deep philosophical you know sort of question, but um, and and infinite possibilities within this tiny lifespan. But it's interesting. You can only be a white man, and you can only marry a white woman. <laughs> and so the game that sort of offers in its uh, description infinite possibilities. <laughs> you know, is circumscribed in this tiny way. And I I was thinking back, too, to uh, your talk about bias and assumptions and sort of who is is doing the algorithms that are presenting us with the irrefutable evidence of our 
you know, liberal beliefs or our gayness or whatever. Um, but uh, thinking about, you know, games and virtual reality environments that um, are, are artfully done or are narratives that satisfy us in the ways of stories. Do you think, do you think that, um, well, what do you think about virtual reality as either a technology that doesn't have a corporate application yet or as potentially a new source of art making? I'm pausing because um, ever since Dungeons and Dragons, I really haven't done much gaming. <laughs> um, that was one of the things, you know, you couldn't see anything with just some words. And you had to, it was like having a memory map in your, and so in your head. And that to me was very pleasurable. Um, I, I, I don't have the manual dexterity to play video games. So uh, bad at, you know, ping pong, bad at, all kinds of things. So uh, now virtual reality is a very interesting thing because I remember when Jaron Lanier first came on stage with his gloves. Jaron is a swell guy and um, and and another uh, occasion he stood up there and he, he explained that he looked forward to casting himself as a cephalopod where he could uh, signal his, that was his the next project he was going to do, where he could signal how he felt to other cephalopods by changing colors. And, you know, he talked about his body, and he really does have the shape of a cephalopod. I mean, <laughs> I don't mean this as any disrespect at all. He had chosen his, his correct animal, mm -hmm. right? And I thought, well, that was really beautiful. Um, and I kept wondering why this never happened. You know, it was the coming thing for... How many years now? 25 years now since this first came on the scene? Uh, year by year, it, and then it died. And there have been all these, these fancy, this fancy gear. Um, my editor, Sean McDonald, told me his neighbor moved out and left uh, on the stoop a full set of a very expensive um, VR headphones, goggles, um, and it sat there untouched for three days. Hmm. No one, it was brand new. Hmm. No one even wanted to steal it. Hmm. So <laughs> what does that tell you about, the, again, this coming thing and why people haven't taken it? And what is the gear? I mean, you put on all this gear and it separates you from people around you. And you you're just stuck in this world, which is supposed to be pleasurable. But you're alone in that world. You really can't talk to anybody else about your experience. You know, this is just this thing that happened to you. Now, for like a little vacation or escape, but not as... Is it art? I love what the New York Times is doing with their 360, daily 360. I don't know if anybody looks at this. Um, they sent out a kind of cardboard box, and you could slip your iPhone into it or not, and... It's, you go into these foreign cultures and you look all around and you are there in places that you could never go to or so many of them on a daily basis. Now that to me is wonderful. I, it puts me in landscapes that I cannot be in physically or, and, or unlikely to be in. 
it's a form of communication. Is it art? I don't know. I, I don't know what can be done with it yet. I really think we're all waiting to see when it will break through as a, as a medium for artists. And it somehow hasn't. I mean, do, do you have any ideas why that might be true? No, it's in, I think about it a lot because I think about, um, uh, you know, withholding television from my children so that they wouldn't become, you know, TV morons. And so I remember buying my son a computer and he was, you know, took the first one apart and didn't work anymore and, you know, the next one and the next one. And, and well, that's good. And, but, take them apart, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, really quickly, like everyone, I mean... TV was stupid then. I mean, TV was just, you know, uh, network stuff, and, and uh, uh, everyone watched the same thing. Probably no one here remembers that, but everybody watched the same thing on the same night. Like, you had to watch stuff in real time. You couldn't watch anything whenever you wanted. And I think the, the, the self-directed experiences that we have are everywhere. I mean, you talk about buying a faucet and, you know, getting lost in this wormhole of choice and, you know, whatever <laughs> you personally want and how many, you know... How many, uh, uh, you know, centimeters of screen do you do you, Ellen, really, really need for your, you know, and 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 I think uh, uh, the, the 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 media have um, uh, really changed, you know, from sort of everybody watching the same kind of banal, you know, evening lineup of TV and talk, you know, families all together, maybe before that the radio, and and then moving to kind of premium cable where uh, you're sort of choosing and opting in to um, a world of much richer, better, kind of highbrow narratives, kind of what movies used to do, but even more, or what serial novels used to do. I mean, I think at this point, really, HBO has taken over the serial novel. It's just a visual medium now. But then you have... Uh, uh, experiences like sort of much smaller, more niche TV shows that don't need to have, um, and we're web-based shows that are sort of, you know, you choose them and you watch them in your own time. But again, it's a little bit like Just virtual don't reality. Just decide you're going to get on YouTube and start looking around. It's like you will never come out the other end. Right. On yourself watching the weirdest things. <laughs> it's fascinating that you you will have your own channel. You know, it's just what you like. And I think that's the next thing in yeah. life I'm going to do. It's what a YouTube channel. a YouTube channel. That's a joke. <laughs> I think you should do it. <laughs> <laughs> Only if you do it with me. <laughs> I'd love it. What What is your next project? I don't know. And I've been going around saying, well, and I don't want to know. I just want to be open, but I'm beginning to see that's, I'll say BS. I don't know what I can say here on your, on your pods. You can uh, say anything on a, a podcast. Okay. This is yours. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, I'm avoiding making a decision. I know plunging into another book is unlikely, Uh Programming and writing are very solitary professions. Um, you can talk about it to a certain degree, but until you actually can show it to somebody, it, it's, it's weeks alone, months alone, years alone, till it, it's in a form that you would send out. So I really want to do something that doesn't involve sitting by yourself for five years. Is that a reasonable request? Uh, 
something that gets me out in the world more, and I haven't decided yet. A, a young woman at Google, where I gave a talk, uh, said, well, you know, I know you don't want to keep being this woman in tech person, woman in tech, but, you know, we need you. Go out there and, you know, do something, you know, be out there. And I thought, well, no, I don't want to do that. And I thought, well, maybe I could get together with some of my friends who are who are have gone through the technology over time, who are smart, and uh, you know, try to form something and at least uh, perhaps work with organizations that are already doing uh, something in, in terms of uh, computing problems and issues in society. That sounds nice. Whether I'll actually do it or not, I don't know. I um, I have gotten this close to being fluent in Spanish multiple times, but never made it. So I thought, well, I'll go live in you know, Colombia for a while. I don't know. Um, only if some book grabs me, you know, and just doesn't let me go. I can't imagine saying, okay, I'm going to turn around now and write another book. It may not be I the mean, book. Can you do that? Can you, can you finish a book and start another one? Um, I've only written three. Um, so only three. I don't know. Right. Um, but I, I know what you mean. I'm, I'm right now actually writing a pilot for a TV show um, with a partner, and it's so different from the weird, solitary. I mean, you know, I just I feel like uh, writing makes you so strange if you didn't start out strange enough to want to be writing, you know, it makes you strange. And, you know, you come out of your office and one eye's bigger than the other and you're just scary, you know. <laughs> um, but it's fun to to write for television and think what could happen, you know, and, and what could happen next time. And um, uh, we talk on the phone every day about what could happen to these characters. And it's so different from anything I've ever done. But for you... Um, I think, you know, you talked a little bit about essays and about um, the, the real need for social action and community building, or I hate those words, but um, kind of consciousness about what technology can do to our privacy and can do if we, if we let it. And um, you, you really write, I think, like no one else about, um, about society and technology. Um, uh, and I, I hope you keep doing it. Maybe the book will creep up on you. I hope so. I um, don't want to give away the end of the book, but it's really no spoiler to say that I, I've met younger women who are writing about technology, and if I had something to say, um, if, was that I was an insider working in that world and an outsider to an extent that I was female, a little bit older than the people I work with, now I see women who are in the position I was. They are working inside uh, places like uh, GitHub and uh, Google and various other startups, blah, blah. And they're also able to write. And I say to them, okay, it's your turn. You know, <laughs> I'm not living deep in that world anymore. I am now an observer to some extent. And I don't want to be another one of those people who writes about technology. You know, arguments, all those people argue and they argue with each other. And uh, I'm not interested in that kind of talk. But I am interested in hearing from people who are, are thinking and feeling and know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. I don't want to write another book about programmers where we never see a programmer, about technology where we never see a programmer. I've reviewed two, and I make a point of 
saying hello. Um, I really do think it, it's time for a, the next generation to pick this up. They're the ones involved. It's their future here. Right? They're, they've staked their lives on this thing. I mean, some can't remember life before the internet or, or just born in their entire lifetimes it was an internet. And so how... I can't, you know, it's like, you can't be a parent forever. Eventually the kid grows up and has, a, you know, a life of her own or his own. So I feel that's what has to happen now. There is a whole generation, some of you here, um, this is your life right now, and it's your turn. Um, ask me questions, but you write about it next. You form organizations. I'm not a political organizer. I'm really bad at that. I'm too blunt. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I deeply feel that. Um, I, I really recommend Life and Code. Um, we have copies here. Uh, uh, I, I think for, for people who are picking up the mantle, it's a really wonderful history of technology in our lifetimes. And I think I felt it so, you know, coincident with my own life, which is partly why it spoke to me from that time of innocence when it felt like uh, technology uh, was uh, uh, kind of ushered in by the counterculture, which turned out really never to have been true, but it felt like it. Yeah. Oh, it did. I mean, there was the whole IBM part of it, but I mean, look at John Markoff's book, uh, What the Dormouse Saw. Um, boy, the original people in the, that I knew as coders were like me. We were countercultural people. People I work with, they were former Sufi dancer and, you know, stone, former stoners and, uh, Markov's book describes like Stuart Brand's Stuart Brand and, and the whole you know, Earth catalog and the whole Earth catalog. I'm still on dead. the well. I'm still on the well. I'll be on the well till yes. I die as long as it exists. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, people dropping acid. Uh, believers in just about everything that's spiritual, uh, drugs, sex, rock and roll. All right, and. So that's where the whole small computer movement came out of. Uh, it's still kind of carrying that cachet that it's cool, but it's not. It's a big corporate thing. Uh, but yeah, that is where it started. That, that isn't a lie. And to that extent, that really was true. Well, read the book. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful trip, uh, a long and strange trip for Ellen Ullman. Thank you. So... Um, Thank you very much. It's really been my pleasure. It really has. I, I love talking with you, Carol. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>